Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. Oh, and I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. But, Dan, the annuals do not count. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this eighth episode of season five of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. And this is the one I think that maybe is the most fascinating, at least to Mark and myself. So we hope you guys strap yourselves in and uh, get ready for a wild ride here. Woohoo, yeah. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider Man creators of yesterday and today. So, this is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, and before we get started, I wanted to reiterate something that I've received a bunch of questions about. You see, Mark and I have been at this for over 300 episodes, which, embarrassingly enough, and maybe incidentally, turns out to be the maximum number of episodes you can have in a podcast feed on Apple Podcasts. We have broken through the barrier that Apple has deemed acceptable. (laughs) I don't know if that's an accomplishment or something... To be sad about if you are someone who is looking to listen through our entire catalog all 300 plus episodes they're not available there anymore so the best place to listen to our old stuff is on amazingspidertalk.com every new episode that we do of the show means that there's going to be unfortunately one less old episode Uh, of our show in the feed so uh, maybe we're going to sound like we were better at podcasting than we were truly when we started this mark also we're losing some great episodes like nearly all of our superior spider talk episodes have disappeared from our podcast feed so that also means that our weird branding issue will slowly disappear over time (laughs) um because there are people that still refuse to call us the amazing spider talk Yeah, so make sure to check out AmazingSpiderTalk.com if you do want to listen to our entire catalog, at least until I figure out a better solution than just telling you they're disappearing. There's that. Just consider that the warning from today. All right, uh, so back to the main topic that we're here to discuss. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, Mark and I are going back to the mid-'80s where comics were changing, embracing new visual styles, aging up with their audience and ditching formulas that had defined serialized superheroes for decades. On the previous episode, Mark, 
we couldn't forget this, but we discussed what made Roger Stern's Hobgoblin one of the greatest villain debuts of all of Spider-Man history and a compelling mystery that we love so, so much. Absolutely, Dan. But, you know, as compelling as that mystery became, it ended with one of the most mystifying and downright confusing reveals in comics history. But that reveal was really only the tip of the iceberg. See, in the Spider-Man creative offices of Marvel, drama, disagreements, and scandal pitted several different creative voices against each other, with their results spilling out onto the comic book pages. So today, we are going to unpack all of the twists and turns on the pages and the -the behind-the-scenes drama that made the reveal of the Hobgoblin's identity so infamous. So yeah, if you want to follow along with us on our journey through this first Hobgoblin identity reveal, if you want to call it that, I mean, I guess (laughs) we had several reveals even before this, as we talked about last episode, we'll be discussing the events of Amazing Spider-Man numbers 259 to 261, 275 to 278, 281 to 289, the Spider-Man vs. Wolverine one-shot, and Web of Spider-Man numbers 29 to 30. Plus, we'll be including several interviews we've done over the years and referencing interviews from a number of publications, including, most specifically, Christopher Priest's 2002 blog post entitled, Why I Never Discuss Spider-Man. I'll have links to all of these materials in the show notes. That's all the stuff you kind of need to read if you want an even more exhaustive experience of this story than what we're going to give you today. Absolutely, Dan. Dan, you know, when we first, you know, you you referenced those Superior Spider Talk episodes earlier today. And in fact, our very first con appearance together, we talked almost exclusively with a bunch of creators about the content that is now going to be in this episode. You know, let's 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 do it, Dan. This is the episode that frankly might have been nine years in the making. I'm excited for it. Let's talk about the Hobgoblin reveal. And let's actually start by kind of laying out the key players that we're going to be talking about and around and in some references to those. uh, Let's start, obviously, with someone who really won't show up much in this episode outside of a name only, and that's Roger Stern. I mean, obviously, we talked at length about Roger Stern in our first Hobgoblin episode because he laid the groundwork where he wanted to do with this mystery is the springboard for all of the drama to follow, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, because it's only through his absence that I think any of this drama cropped up, you know, like there's an alternate version of this universe we're about to discuss where Roger Stern got to keep doing what he was doing and none of this stuff came to pass. Absolutely. So then on top of Roger, we'll be talking about Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. They were, of course, the main creative team on Amazing Spider-Man during the bulk of the issues that we were talking about. Tom DeFalco as the writer, scripter, and Ron as the the uh, artist, penciler. Of course, Tom would say that Ron was a was a critical partner in the, in the storyline and plot development of all these issues, even though Ron would probably be like, I don't know what Tom was doing at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, key, key to note that, like, our next season of the show will be largely about the DeFalco Friends run. So this is almost kind of like a jump ahead into our next season. But we felt it made more sense to discuss all of this here in one kind of place. So like these are two players 
that, I mean, I think fans of our show are already very aware of because they're frequent guests on our show, but like they will be even more frequent names that will crop up as we move on with our next season. Definitely. Okay. So then the next person we want to talk about, of course, is the editor of the Spider Books, who at the time was known as Jim Owsley. You would, of course, know him now today as Christopher Priest. You know, spoiler alert, when we got super excited to talk to Christopher Priest, at, you know, for our 200th episode a couple of years ago, you'll understand why when we lay out some of the drama that he was involved with. He was the main editor over the books, including, you know, which technically made him the boss of DeFalco and Friends. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in, in the years since, you know, Priest has had a number of notable comic runs, you know, Black Panther being kind of probably his most famous in that he kind of redefined the character and the one you see on the big screen is pretty much straight out of his comics so it's easy to kind of pigeonhole this guy as a spider-man voice but really that is probably maybe one of the more forgotten uh, influences that he's had on comics over the years absolutely uh and then of course the next one is someone that most comic book fans of you know many different characters will recognize that's peter david Peter David at this point in time was just getting his feet wet as the main scripter on Spectacular Spider-Man. So he was actually hired by Christopher Priest. Well, Jim Owsley, we'll just call him Priest for the most, you know, and in, 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 I guess modern talk, because that's what he's known <laughs> as. But he was hired by Christopher Priest. He will, he too will play a role in how the Hobgoblin mystery unfolded. Yeah. Next up is Jim Salakrup, who was the editor that replaced Jim Owsley at the time, now Christopher Priest uh, on the books and uh, kind of a, you know, a, a long-standing Marvel stalwart. You know, he had taken on a number of roles at the company, but here he's most important as the person that replaced Owsley on the book. And then the lastly, the, and we unfortunately don't have an interview with him, but boy, would this be a great interview to get. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be Jim Shooter, who um, was the editor in chief of Marvel uh, throughout this period until he was eventually replaced by Tom DeFalco. Jim actually brought Jim Owsley into the fold. Uh, he, he was one of his rising stars when he hired him to oversee the Spider books. Obviously, as the editor in chief of Marvel, Jim, you know, had, um, you know, uh, a lot of influence over where the books were going. It's also worth noting that when Jim Shooter first came to Marvel in the late 70s, his first hire was Tom DeFalco. Things things to note <laughs> as this mystery unfolds. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to be talking a lot about Jim Shooter, even just to close out this season, as we talk about Secret Wars, which uh, he was the author of. So, you know, Mark, last episode, we talked about Roger Stern's time on the Hobgoblin. And as we've noted on this season, you know, it got abridged. You know, Roger Stern wasn't able to finish the story as he left to go take on the Avengers title. So here come a, a new creative team on the book. Tell us about the transition. Yeah. So when Roger Stern left the book, you know, Tom DeFalco actually had been editing it 
uh, editing the spider books for a while. So um, there was a lot of familiarity there between Roger and Tom. I mean, you know, Tom knew what Roger was up to and was was well aware of the Hobgoblin mystery and situation. So when when, you know, they were kind of readying the transition, you know, one of the first things that Tom asked Roger was, you know, what what were your intentions for the Hobgoblin? And spoiler alert, you know, what what Roger Stern told Tom was, I wanted to be the Kingsley brothers. And it was like the brothers, the twin, are they twins? No, they're not twins. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let Tom talk a little bit about that in a second, but you know, it's worth noting that before they kind of got back into the hobgoblin situation, you know, where we last left off in our first episode about this arc, you know, the hobgoblin was dead with no corpse in uh 251. So of course he's alive. Uh, um, and, <laughs> The book kind of took a took a you know a right turn to kind of focus on the black suit saga because that was what was going on in Secret Wars at the time, which was the first big Marvel crossover event, which we will get to in in you know post haste here on Amazing Spider Talk. They they had a, they had some time before they had to get back to Hobgoblin, so they were kind of just getting their ducks in a row. Actually, Danny Fingeroth was kind of handling editing duties on the books for for a bit until. You know, basically the the hobgoblin stuff started kicking off again around two fifty eight, two fifty nine. Excuse me. Why don't we now turn the microphone over to an interview we did with Tom DeFalco from that first time we were together at? Uh, it was Terrificon in its infancy. I don't know if it was his first year, but it was one of its first years. It was wasn't at the Mohegan Sun at that point. It was at some smaller hotel. It was like what, like two rooms in a hotel somewhere. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, the first time you and I ever met. Yes, exactly. And, and, and somehow we're still here and didn't murder each other. Go figure. And I, and I even had to lend you money. So, you know, like just go figure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's Tom DeFalco. There you go. When Roger Stern first started with the Hobgoblin, I happened to be the editor of Amazing Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, originally the Hobgoblin was not going to be a mystery. Um, but we decided it would be a mystery, and uh, I, I said to Roger, okay, well, it'll be a mystery, and Roger said, I'm not going to tell you who I'm thinking of, and I said, fine, but I'm going to keep a list of suspects, um, and I'm going to cross them off as, as, as they're gone, so that when you're ready to tell me who it is, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what it, you know, whether or not I agree with you. Um, I have a, 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 a small connection to uh, mystery books and novels and that sort of stuff in, in another world. So uh, I'm familiar with how the mystery genre works. And, you know, we went from there. Now, at one point, uh, Roger decided to leave Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, Danny Fingerworth invited me on the book. Uh, I wasn't sure I could do it. Then he said, well, why don't you script the first couple of issues of Roger's stuff, and, and we'll see. Um, once it was decided that I would do it, I said to Roger, okay, who did you think the Hobgoblin was? And he told me who it was, and I said, uh, you know, his, his idea was it was uh, Roger Kingsley, the evil twin. And I said, evil twin? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> said, okay. I said, I, I may go in another direction. And, and then from then on, I had a, a, 
a, a whole other direction in mind. So like you said, Mark, the kind of bulk of the Hobgoblin, or I guess the Hobgoblin story itself reignites in Amazing Spider-Man 259 through this kind of short three-part story, 259 to, to 261, which, you know, coincidentally, like, lines up perfectly with this watershed moment in Peter and MJ's history in Amazing Spider-Man 259. Um, we're definitely going to talk about that on the next season of the show, and we have done an episode on that issue uh, in our Essentials series with... Uh, guest Alan Scherstel, but available is, Alan. <laughs> he is available. The notable thing about that issue is that it's the one where Peter and MJ kind of reveal their secrets to each other. And that's a whole other topic. The important thing in regards to the Hobgoblin is that we learn that the Hobgoblin is now cooperating with this new villain invented by DeFalco and friends called the Rose. And they are kind of collaborating together to coerce gambling establishments to give them money. They're kind of just kind of like fleecing the underworld. And meanwhile, also the Hobgoblin steps up his attacks on Harry Osborne to get copies of Norman's journals, which if you don't remember, got destroyed in his final battle with uh, Spider-Man at the end of the Stern run. He also kidnaps Liz Allen and uh, MJ and weirdly enough knows MJ by name. So like those are some of the big things that uh, happen with the Hobgoblin in these issues. It's mostly just kind of a reestablishment of the character. He's not dead. Here's a few clues, which I mentioned, but I thought we could talk uh, largely about what the Hobgoblin is like under the like, creative pens of DeFalco and friends, because I do think it is a slightly different character than the one that we got under Stern. What, what stands apart to you about their interpretation of the Hobgoblin. It was kind of his, you know, his vernacular, the way he talks. So this, although this could frankly just be more of a reflection on the kind of writer that DeFalco was, who I kind of feel was like, I mean, we talked a little bit throughout this season about how kind of Stern would take the the schmaltz of, of Stan Lee and then kind of put his own spin on it. DeFalco really leaned into the schmaltz of Stan Lee. So like, you know, that's that kind of, feels true here with like his the way his hobgoblin spoke it was very kind of 60s and 70s esque full of like you know like very grand phrases and and proclamations and but also kind of like some catchy witticisms and things like that obviously when the hobgoblin was introduced during the stern run he was kind of like you know the main event if you will and and you know i found it interesting that you know one of the big things that DeFalco and friends introduced was like, he, he was kind of almost second fiddle to the Rose who was their creation, you know, like they, they wanted to emphasize the Rose as, as kind of the, the ringleader of this underworld uh, cartel that was starting up here. So, I mean, what, what other things come to mind for you, Dan? Well, it's funny because like one of the notable things about the Hobgoblin was that he wasn't your stock villain. He yeah. seemed smarter and more cunning than all of that by making him play second fiddle to the rose i think it steals some of the hobgoblin spotlight although the character had been around for quite some time and you, you can already feel it getting a little long in the tooth even though we we love it in making him kind of like second fiddle he almost comes across as more of the madman than the rose does who feels like the more calculating 
character. And in some ways, I feel like that robs the Hobgoblin of some of his specialness. It does feel like the character gets a little bit like demoted in comparison to the Rose. And and that's to say like demoted in that he kind of becomes a Spider-Man villain, you know, like, like a pretty standard, like mustache twirling kind of guy. And you could maybe chalk that up to the fact that like, he wants to get revenge on something personal with Spider-Man after the end of the Stern run. But it it does seem much more like you said that it's just De, DeFalco's writing that kind of recharacterizes him. But for, for all of the kind of like grandiose verbiage and mustache twirling that DeFalco does, I think he's actually really excellent and probably better than Stern at, creating mysteries that like kind of wrap themselves up in each other. And I think that might actually be the trick to what makes this work so well is you've got the mystery of the Rose, you've got the mystery of the Hobgoblin. And so you can never tell what clues are meant to go towards either one of them. Mm. And then you've got this whole subplot of like Ned Leeds and Lance Bannon and Flash Thompson and everybody's acting a little bit irregular. And so you can never quite put your finger on like which direction you're supposed to be looking. And I think even at this time, you know, if a new character is introduced, you can just assume that that guy's the villain. But here it's impossible the way Tom DeFalco writes it to really figure out like which direction you're meant to be looking to solve this. So why don't why don't we again turn the microphone over to Tom DeFalco, who's going to talk a little bit about this idea of Ned Leeds and was Ned ever his his main suspect as the Hobgoblin? Ned Leeds was, uh, you know, what I, I figured as as the main red herring. Ned Leeds had, you know, you know, he, he was only good as far as I was concerned. Um, as a red herring. So before we move on to the next chapter, I, I did want to talk about Ron Friends' interpretation of the Hobgoblin, which is a bit different than J.R.J.R.'s interpretation of the character. I feel like he kind of dials down the bug eyes uh, on the character, which would, I think e- even on our show, Ramita Jr. said was like kind of one of the major characteristics that he brought to the Hobgoblin. I felt like the hood is emphasized a little bit more in Friends. It's that kind of like V parting down the down the face. It's been kind of characteristic of the hood. And then there's this weird detail that I wanted to point out, Mark, that like in my reread, I thought might go somewhere. Friends and the subsequent artists that work on the book after him draw this like red circle on the Hobgoblin's breast that wasn't there in the JRJR version of it. And I wondered if like at some point that was intended to signal multiple different hobgoblins, like whether they had this red circle on their breast or not, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And so I've never known what that image or design choice is about. It's just this strange, it almost looks like he's wearing like a, like Mary Marvel marching society button on his, <laughs> on his uh, breast. I, I, I don't know what it is. It was an invention, I think, of Ron Friends that continued with the design of the character, but was definitely not something that I remember from the John Romita Jr. run. So I don't know if that would ever meant to go anywhere, but it's there. It's now part of the uniform. That's a good breakdown of it for sure, Dan. So why don't we now talk a little bit about our dear old friend, our pal, Flash Thompson. No, I'm not going to bring his character back here. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
kind of from this initial arc, we, we, you know, the next big arc involving the Hobgoblin was 275 to 278. And, and it really focused on kind of Flash Thompson being the fall guy, I guess, if you will, for the Hobgoblin mystery. You know, just just for some additional context here, you know, it's it's worth noting that uh, over the course of these issues, that Hobgoblin, you know, he kind of, he comes across as like being obsessed with beating out Wilson Fisk as the crime lord of uh, New York City. So, you know, just just keep that in the back of your mind. The Rose, meanwhile, is still working with the Hobgoblin, but is kind of growing tired of working with the Hobgoblin. He feels that the character is a bit erratic and over the edge, which is interesting because, again, that was kind of not the direction that Roger Stern wanted the character to be in initially. You know, he was more calculating and smart and, and, you know, not out of his gourd the way like Norman Osborn was as the Green Goblin. Meanwhile, while the Hobgoblin's obsessed with Wilson Fisk, Wilson Fisk seems preoccupied with the Rose over the course of these issues. It's a love um, triangle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, go figure. Now, of course, in the in like the underbelly of all this, Ned Leeds is like, I mean, look, he just is coming across as like prime suspect number one here. You know, Eddie is unhappy with her marriage because of all the undercover assignments that um, Robbie's sending Ned out for. And, you know, that's what that that kind of throws Betty into the arms of Flash, which is, you know, once again, Betty is Betty does not come across as, <laughs> as a virtuous character in these books, which is just a little unfortunate. Meanwhile, like Robbie is like, you know, Robbie Robertson from the bugle, like, you know, is basically like, Oh, I, I'm not sending Ned out or I don't know what Ned's working on. So like that gets Betty all suspicious. Ned's like confronting Shashan at Flash's apartment and then Flash assaults Shashan. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what is happening here with these characters? Like, why, why, why can't this be a simple, uh, a, a simpler time? And at one point, like Ned even says he's got deadly serious business with Flash. But then Flash beats up Ned, which, you know, P.S. Oh, well, that ends up getting referenced in the, in the Nick Spencer run, right? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, like, like if Flash can beat me up, I actually need to be the Hobgoblin. I need the powers, right? Uh, but anyway, but like, you know, if I guess that's, that, that was a clue at the time. If Flash could get one over on Ned, then how is he? How could he possibly be a supervillain? But we'll, we'll we'll get there in a minute. But then, like Hobgoblin kidnaps Shashan, and then Flash taunts the Hobgoblin, and then we see Roderick Kingsley in Amazing Spider-Man two seventy six, and I think this is the first time we see Kingsley since what, like the end of the Stern Run? Yeah, no, it's a really quick moment, and uh, another thing worth putting a pin in. You know, yeah. like Kingsley is back you know intentionally this is when flash is on tv and he's like calling out the hobgoblin for kidnapping shashan and it's interesting because they kind of like lay out some suspects here i don't know if anybody thought roderick would be a suspect but he is there and like lance bannon is also watching the tv so now we've got like intrepid photographer lance bannon in on all of this so he's suddenly a suspect now you know, Flash does have like a confrontation with the Hobgoblin where he sees who the Hobgoblin is. We don't. The reader does. But Flash seems to recognize the Hobgoblin. So, you know, again, and like that seems to be a big, big clue, which leads us to the Hobgoblin, like planting all of his gear around Flash's apartment, you know, essentially framing him for his crimes. 
And then that, of course, leads poor old Flash, good old buddy pal Flash to go to jail. So that is, you know, the 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 arc of Flash. So, like, you know, clearly Flash is not the Hobgoblin, but, you know, it, it, like the mystery is evolving to have the world think Flash is the Hobgoblin while we and Peter eventually know that can't possibly be. So that's that's kind of the big swerve of the mystery at this point. It is a great reveal, and I love the covers from this era where it's like you've got the faceless hobgoblin being led away and justice is served, you know, Flash is being unmasked. I mean, it was, I could imagine reading this at the time. I mean, I wasn't alive at the time, I don't think. I could imagine the shock of seeing Flash Thompson there before the, you know, subsequent realization that, like, it's in no way Flash. And I love these issues because it's kind of the fun and games of, like, what clues are are worth it you know like i was saying earlier you know ultimately i think this was all a distraction from tom defalco's ultimate plan for the hobgoblin and the rose which he's going to talk about in this clip right here uh, the hobgoblin was going to be uh, uh richard fisk uh and um i was going to use kingsley as the uh rose so I got I to gotta say right away, and we'll get to this, I think, probably a little later on this episode, too. Like, you know, from what Tom just said in that interview, like, no way is that is this coming across that Richard Fisk is a big suspect and that, you know, as the Hobgoblin and that Roderick Kingsley is the road. You can make a case that, you know, the Hobgoblin being obsessed with 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 Kingpin can lead there. But I don't know, something something doesn't quite add up. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, I mean, I, I like the logic behind it, right? You've got this fashion designer, Kingsley, you know, as the Rose, who's a very fashion forward villain. And like, to me, that always made made sense. And then like a madman like Richard Fisk, who kind of like takes up this costume to bring down his father, like that, that all works for me. But I don't know that the clues were really pointing this direction if this was ultimately where Tom DeFalco was going, we'll talk about in the next chapter, like how like he kind of even subverts that idea. So I don't know how much of this is him kind of like looking back and like retroactively changing the direction that he was going in. And, and I like this idea, but I don't know that that's what he was really executing, which I think is echoed by Ron Friends here. So artist Ron Friends has his own memories of how the identities of the Hobgoblin and Rose were determined from an interview that we did with him in 2013. So here's a clip from that interview. What I remember, and you know, it's not, it's not an accurate memory because what I remember was that at one point uh, we had talked about doing a, uh, as Tom remembers, it was kind of a, 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 a what do you call it there? A, a, a fake out, a, a, a red herring was that it was going to be Ned Leeds. And what I remember about that is I love the idea of it being Ned Leeds. I love the idea of it being Ned Leeds and the reader finding out it was Ned Leeds before Pete found out it was Ned Leeds. You know, like there was tension between Ned and Betty and Pete, and so when his spider sense would sometimes go off when Ned was around, he's like, oh, man, what's going on here? You know, that kind of thing. And the readers know that Ned is the Hobgoblin, but Pete doesn't find out until a big... You know, a big turning point issue or something like that. Sure. But that was only something that Tom said at a meeting 
to because he was concerned about it getting out. That was in the days of the early fan press and everything. Right. He mentioned that the fanzines were often around when he's asked yeah, about this. And he didn't want to reveal. The memories it. on that are all spotty, and uh, and some people are uh, you know aren't remembering it the same way Tom is. And quite frankly, I don't remember the specifics. But you know, I, I'm not going to argue with Tom's version of it because I don't have any memories of my own to that. Uh, you know, it's it's a shame, but we didn't know. You know, what's that? Mark Swayze line from Alter Ego. We didn't know we were making history. You know, his line is, "We didn't know it was the golden age of comics. We didn't know this was something I'd be talking about 28 sure. years later with with somebody." You know, it's almost too obvious of its Ned leads based on like you know what we're hearing here from Ron and Tom and and all that. And yet, like when you look at the evidence in retrospect, it probably should have been Ned leads. <laughs> you know, I, I can see why Ron would be like, oh, I, I kind of like the idea of it being Ned leads, you know, like, because it would have worked, I think, almost better with what was being laid out, as obvious as it was. <laughs> but you know, what's f- fun about that is like that everything Ned Leeds says also works for him just being angry about Flash, you know, getting with Betty Brandt, because at the time, Betty Brandt and Flash had been like sleeping together while she was still married to Ned. And so like, that's the fun of this is you, you can read it either way. So it like makes you want to think Ned is a supervillain, but really he's just like a jilted husband. I mean, that's enough to turn anybody into a supervillain, I think. So I, I called this next chapter, Tom DeFalco humors Roger Stern. And that gets back to the kind of story that we were just talking about, which is like that, what direction was Tom DeFalco going in? So like the next big story for the Hobgoblin is an amazing Spider-Man 281 to 283, where the story really starts to focus on Kingsley himself. So there's an issue, amazing Spider-Man 280. And this is the one that has always kind of baffled me the most in terms of like my reaction to Tom DeFalco's claims about his intentions with the character. So in this issue, Mary Jane has taken a job at Kingsley Limited as a a model, and she's doing this show, and she's asked by the producer to go get Roderick Kingsley to appear on screen. And as she's walking to his dressing room, she notes specifically that he spends an awfully long time in his dressing room getting ready. And that's a huge clue for those who don't know like what happened with the hobgoblin ultimately like and we're going to talk about this in our in our next episode where it all gets kind of fixed up is the hobgoblin is a split between roderick kingsley and his brother daniel who dress up like each other and share the hobgoblin costume so to make a note like he's spending an awfully long time in the dressing room getting ready feeds directly into what Stern had already told Tom DeFalco was his plan for this character. So like whether Tom DeFalco planned to subvert that later, it does seem like he's humoring Roger Stern's original plan because we also see when we go into the dressing room, Roderick is shown with a faceless man in his dressing room who's holding a pumpkin bomb. So we can only assume that that's the hobgoblin and the hobgoblin threatens, you know, we'll both go to jail if anyone learns the truth about us. And my confusion is like, it, if looking back on it, like we can assume that this is Daniel dressed as Roderick, right? He's got a wig on his head because Daniel's bald and Roderick is not. And that 
explains why it took so long for him to get ready, right? He's got to adjust his wig or toupee or whatever. And it's Roderick standing next to him as the hobgoblin. But DeFalco said, as we played in that clip earlier, that he didn't like the twins idea. But I can't really think of any other clear explanation of what is going on in the scene, if not the twins idea. Because the rose appears immediately afterwards. So if like Kingsley is the rose, like how is he in two places at once, right? So like my like you know, I guess I didn't have an opportunity to ask DeFalco about this, but like did he start off playing Stern's game and then try to kind of course correct it? it? I, you know, that's the thing that's always kind of mystified me is like, this seems like it's playing Stern's game, not playing DeFalco's game with, you know, Fisk and Kingsley. Do you have any thoughts on this, Mark? Not a ton outside of the fact that like I could also just, I mean, because to this day when Tom talks about this run and, vis-a-vis Roger Stern. I mean, it's clear that he has, even though he didn't love the twins idea and him and Ron friend still kind of poke fun at it or, or, or that's the thing. They're not twins. They're, they just look a lot alike. I think that's, well, what, yes. that, that's what makes him incredulous. But, but like, it's also very clear that Tom DeFalco has an incredible amount of respect for Roger Stern. I would say my only theory, if you will, was like, yeah, it's, it, I mean, not so much that he was trying to course correct, but like, he probably figured, let me let me pay homage to this idea and it'll just be another red herring. You know, like that. That's kind of where I think might have been the mindset of why we got this sequence. Not not that he had intention to go all the way with it and then backed out for whatever reason. But just like, let me let me introduce this one in here. And then, you know, and. I mean, I know you're pointing out, well, then how do the rose appear is like so quickly, but like, you know, whatever it's comics, we can explain it away <laughs> with something, you know, or maybe the rose wasn't supposed to appear that quickly. And, you know, cause that's the other thing that kind of keeps lying in the background here. How much of this was kind of subverted by the editorial direction of, of Owsley, which we'll get to when we have his interview in a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's all very interesting. And, and in hindsight, it looks brilliant. Right. Because it's like, oh, no, this is the plan all along, you know. Right. Um, right. Like, you know, p- post 90s Spider-Man, it looks brilliant, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and I think that's what makes us laugh about this story so much. So a couple other things happen in, in the story that are of note towards this growing mystery. So like in in like kind of like getting a little bit ahead, like ahead of himself here, like Jack O'Lantern, the villain, approaches the Rose to take over for the Hobgoblin as his like uh, right-hand man. Jack-o'-lantern would eventually become the next Hobgoblin. So in a way, he kind of did. And the Hobgoblin doesn't like this. There's this interesting moment where walking down the street as a civilian, the Hobgoblin bumps into MJ, who also recognizes him immediately and even takes him by the arm. So that's how you get like even more theories about Ned Leeds, but, you know, technically, if it's Roderick Kingsley, she's also working for Kingsley, so it still works out. In Amazing Spider-Man 281, Jack-O-Lantern then busts Flash out of jail, but the Hobgoblin shows up and tries to kill them both. Ultimately, the Hobgoblin is defeated, and Flash runs away to live in hiding. And this is where we get, like, a series of issues of just homeless Flash Thompson <laughs> on the run from the police who think he's the Hobgoblin. And to further complicate this story, you've got an amazing Spider-Man 283. 
the police captain, Captain Keating, the police captain at the time, uh, becomes like obsessed with finding Flash. And he has some kind of insider's knowledge that we don't know how he got it. And then, you know, meanwhile, back at the bugle, Ned is still spouting off and he attacks Peter for defending Betty's adultery, which Peter is kind of <laughs> caught up in. Um, this is a mess. And Betty is just at this point, just a mess of a, of a character. But it also triggers this series with Ned where every time he's near Pete, he sets off Pete's spider sense. And so that's supposed to make you think he's the hobgoblin. Although I think it's more just that like he's like losing his mind because he's his wife is being so openly adulterous. But then, you know, to, to kind of like complicate that, Pete's spider sense also goes off when he visits Kingsley Limited. So there's something going on there and they retcon it any number of ways why, why this is. And this thing is just getting endlessly complicated. You know, Comics, the listeners buddy. at home keeping up with it, who can, who can say? But if they <laughs> did want to discuss this amongst themselves, where might they go, Mark? Oh, well, of course, hundreds of listeners like you can hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you could jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm all there all the time. Uh, this week, we've been discussing the release of Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, lots to say about that movie. I'm recording this before the movie comes out, so I don't have a lot to say about it. But I'm sure we're talking about it. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And uh, let us know what you thought of this episode about the Hobgoblin. Everybody's been demanding it. We delivered it. I hope it lives up to expectations. Come let us know in the Slack. So, Mark, let's get back to our regularly scheduled program talking about the Hobgoblin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's buckle up. If you thought this was getting complicated, it's about to go to 11. <laughs> I think, Mark, this is where you officially fall in love with the behind the scenes of this story. Like... I'll never forget, and we're talking about Jim Owsley slash Christopher Priest here. When we got that interview with Christopher Priest for our 200th episode, which we'll play clips of here, I don't think I've ever seen you more giddy to talk to someone about something. I mean, we've had some big names on the show. Jerry Conway, John Romita Jr. I mean, you name it, but like... Boy, Mark became like a firecracker when when the opportunity to talk about (laughs) this stuff with Christopher Priest came up. Well, because frankly, this is like, you know, I for people who are unaware, I mean, my 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 former life, I was a newspaper journalist. And to me, like this is this is like where you kind of like get into like the investigative journalism, because like this thing just gets really screwed up with the with the politics and the backstabbing. And I, I, I just want to know, I want the truth. You know what I mean? Like, I like, just tell me the truth. Like, like what, what is the actual story here? So let's, let's lay some of this out here. I mean, as we, as we mentioned kind of early on, Jim Owsley, now Christopher Priest, he had t- taken over from as the group editor from Danny Figueroa and like, Owsley was like considered a superstar in Jim Shooter's eyes. Like this was like, you know, like he was going to be the next big thing for Marvel, you know, kind of to that point. Owsley kind of asserted himself over DeFalco and friends. And, you know, he talks a lot about like the relationships he had with both of them uh, in that blog post we referenced earlier, which is, quote unquote, why I never discussed Spider-Man, which frankly, you know, with a title like that, 
when we had him on our show to discuss Spider-Man, of course I was excited. He said he was never going to discuss <laughs> Spider-Man again. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, frankly, if you read the blog post, you'll understand why. I mean, in short, Priest basically like started a, a war with DeFalco and friends. I mean, it, it kind of started innocuously where he left feedback on like friends's answering machine criticizing his artwork because he felt that peter parker in a lot of his issues had too much of a flat top which was actually not friends's fault it was joe rubenstein's inking that kind of gave him like i mean it was already kind of based off of the ditko design but like and, and friends talks about the, the whole flat top issue in that interview you had with him too didn't he dan i'm trying to remember yeah yeah i specifically asked him about it and uh and he got into it so yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he felt like it had really altered his work you know as much respect as he had for joe rubenstein yeah and like you know you gotta understand like for for, for friends like working on spider-man as he's mentioned on the show many times was a dream come true so like he, he's a sensitive guy he's and you know and frankly he thought he was getting basically going to get fired for this. And like he, he let Tom know and Tom like had to call up Priest and be like, all right, in the future, when you're going to leave critical feedback for an artist, you know, it's best not to just do it on an answering machine, <laughs> you know, like like have some sensitivity, buddy. Yeah. And, and remember, remember, like Jim Owsley, at you know, at the time now, Christopher Priest was a young guy. I mean, like yes. in his like what early 20s mid 20s that's the kind of social grace you don't get when you're in your 20s you, yeah you know what and, i mean like that's a mistake anybody could make and like i think it's also worth noting and like you know this is like it doesn't seem to be even remotely a big deal now but like this was 1983 84 whatever it was you know priest is a person of color so like he, he's a person of color in a position of power as a young person. So like there's, there's, there's just a lot of like underlying tensions going on and I'm sure insecurities and, and all of that from all the parties at play here. I mean, is that a fair assessment, Dan? Am I, am I going off the, you know, going off the deep end and saying that? <laughs> totally, totally, totally. I mean, so like, like one of the things, I mean, it's important for us to notice, like we're probably going to make Jim Owsley look like a villain here and and maybe and maybe he deserves it and i think in that blog post he suggests as much but right. it, but it, like you said it is worth noting that there is like a youthfulness and a racial dynamic here that i am sure played a part of this you know and, and can't be ignored but we also can't place ourselves back in the time and see it so we're going to do the best we can to characterize this in a fair way you know after the whole voicemail incident with friends it feels like Priest and DeFalco tried to make it work, but it didn't work. Like, like it, clearly DeFalco just thought this guy was a lightweight. And, you know, from there, Priest became like further insecure and upset about it and tried to kind of assert his control and, and power over the two of them. So it, it, it just kind of, you know, there were accusations from DeFalco that, and this wasn't this didn't come out, I don't think, in the blog post. This came out in one of the many interviews, maybe like back issue or something like that, where essentially DeFalco accuses Priest of like cutting out essential storyline bits that would have pointed to Richard Fisk being the hobgoblin. Priest was just annoying the hell out of DeFalco <laughs> about the hobgoblin, like just asking him about it, like where's it going next? What do we, you know, the 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 fan press wants it and you know wants to know and blah 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 blah. And DeFalco just you know, 
you know, who, who, you know, DeFalco by all intents and purposes is a lifer. He's been, you know, he starts with Archie comics and then comes over with shooter and has been right, you know, working on spider-man and this is and i think like for the most part spider-man was like defalco's first regular gig as a writer you know what i mean like he was mainly editing stuff at that point so defalco doesn't want to be dealing with this with this young guy making making trouble for him and as for friends he he was not interested in getting involved with the behind the scenes drama which will will we'll drop the clip here from our interview with him about that Tom was in the office all the time. Uh, Jim Ausius, you know, obviously was in the office. I was not. I was sitting in my in my studio in Pittsburgh, kind of minding my own business on that stuff. Mark, I really get the impression that Tom DeFalco was really looking out for friends at the time too, like allowing friends to stay out of the drama and protecting him a little bit. You know, friends was you know relatively new on the scene and really cutting his teeth, and I think in many ways felt like somewhat lucky to land such a high profile gig as this. I think DeFalco knew to kind of keep him safe. And so like they'll discuss in some of the interviews that we do, like where they exchange knowing glances in the, in the presence of, of Jim Owsley. And I think that's just because like Ron knew better than to like, maybe stick himself back in that arena. Does that seem like a fair um, oh, 100%. characterization? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I felt like, DeFalco is kind of like a big brother to Ron in a lot of ways, you know, like, I, I don't know what the age difference is, but it definitely comes across that way. So, um, you know, when we interviewed Tom DeFalco, he told us about one of the like key moments that he felt marked the true disintegration of his relationship with Jim Owsley. So here's that clip. Owsley had a meeting. Um, we're, we're all in, in, in the room together. Uh, he was always angry at me because I wouldn't tell him who the hobgoblin was. And um, he, he, we had a Spider-Man thing, and we had uh, three fanzine guys, uh, from Comic Journal, a couple of other fanzines there. And Owsley said to me, so who is the Hobgoblin? And I said, I'm not going to mention it now, because you got guys from the fanzines here. <laughs> so he asked those three guys to leave the room, so they walked outside. And I knew that their ears were against the... The thing, and he says, oh, "Who's the hobgoblin? You got to tell me now, or you're fired. You got to tell me now, or you're fired." And I said, uh, "And Ron Friends, I uh, so was sketching." And I said, uh, "It's Ned Leeds." And and I remember Ron pausing in the middle of a sketch and looked at me, and then put his head down and went back to the sketch because <laughs> I didn't trust uh, Jim Owsley, uh, and that later proved to be a wise choice <laughs> and it just cracks me up frankly after hearing that that it was basically like you know like a fake news moment <laughs> that led to this, you know like oh let's let's just give him something let's give the fans the the zine press something to chew on while, while, while we do that but you know what but basically ended up happening and you know in the in the owsley blog he talks about you know, that they were that that friends in DeFalco were consistently late making deadlines. And, you know, apparently like Jim Shooter empowered priests to, you know, to take care of of any creators that were consistently missing deadlines, which I mean, actually probably was true because like Shooter was I mean, this was part of the reason why, like the, the entire creative office, like kind of revolted against Shooter eventually was like he was just kind of relentless about deadlines and missing deadlines and books not being able to ship on time. 
this basically culminates with Owsley firing DeFalco and friends from the book. And at this point, the gang war arc, which was this huge storyline that was involved with the Hobgoblin and the Rose and Jack-o'-lantern and Kingpin and Daredevil in a fat suit. And, I mean, like, what didn't it have? <laughs> um, this, this is one of those, like, ultimate, like, dream fulfillment things. I'd love to see what this gang war arc would have looked like if it was completed by DeFalco and friends, right? Because it takes a hard right turn the minute that they're fired. I feel like we'll, like we'll never know what the ending of that was supposed to look like. And there's been so many gang war stories over the years in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man that are like often not that great. This one, I think, is a pretty solid fight, except, except for the silliness of the, the fat suit daredevil, <laughs> which, I mean, which, you know, which is an all-timer. I, I, I think friend of the podcast, Tyler Barless, will always say to me, fat suit daredevil loses me right away. (laughs) (laughs) So so what happens when they're fired from the book? Who takes over? Well, 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 Priest or Owsley basically starts scripting the books off of DeFalco's plot. So, I mean, you know, like some key moments from these stories. I mean, like in ASM 284, Richard Fisk shows up for like the first time and like 20 years it feels like <laughs> we, we we learned that king roderick kingsley is working with captain keating that that old like chekhovian gun if you will about giving him info on the rose we got lance bannon he's back and he's got exclusive photos of the hobgoblin after having enough significant other you know man-on-woman abuse with flash and shashan we finally have ned assaulting betty i mean what else we got dan <laughs> Yeah, and 285, Ned leads, it's revealed it's working on a, a, a big story, but he needs like Cold War info to complete it. And that's kind of like the thing that he's been secretly working on in private without Robbie Robertson's approval. So like, it's it's not that he's the Hobgoblin necessarily. He's just been working on this like mega article that he wanted to keep out, like hidden from everybody. Very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In Amazing Spider-Man 286, this is where like Owsley takes over the writing. You've got that Richard Fisk is revealed to be the Rose. So you can see immediately. Yeah, twisting the knife, to, right? To turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the issue, there's actually an interesting scene where Fisk is forced to kill a young police officer, which makes him a killer for the first time. And you can see that he's very opposed to killing someone. And Richard Fisk has kind of since gone on to become like an absolute madman, especially as was um, kind of teased in, in the Nick Spencer run. Like that was the frightening thing about him returning. You know, this could be marked maybe as the turning point for when he got his first kind of taste of blood. In Amazing Spider-Man 287, also written by Owsley, like Hobgoblin specifically is like looking for information on the, the Kingpin. We get a shadowy figure fighting with Kingsley that is revealed to be Lance Bannon. Okay, so Kingsley, Lance Bannon are interacting in some way. We we find out that Ned Leeds has info on the Kingpin return to New York City, which is what the Hobgoblin is looking for. To tie that off, like the Hobgoblin is also looking for Soviet spy info, which is what Ned was looking for. <laughs> so, so there's crazy. some connection there. Again, this is all Jim Owsley This is bonkers, stuff. Dan. This yeah. is bonkers. <laughs> yeah. 
In um, issue 288, also written by Owsley, Leeds visits Lance Bannon to go to Europe with him. Bannon, we when we look in his apartment, he has a secret wall of Hobgoblin photos, which I don't know that we ever really get an answer for entirely. Yeah. I really feel um, like like Lance Bannon coming back as a prime suspect was like an 11th hour flex here. I don't quite get it. I mean, like, actually, you know, what's funny is like when Lance Bannon is... When the Hobgoblin is first introduced by Stern way back in the day, we get this moment where like Lance Bannon is kind of seen on the next page after when the Hobgoblin's hideout. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if he was like supposed to be an early red herring, which I think he was supposed to be. Seeing him featured so heavily here is just so bizarre to me because like he was so clearly forgotten by this point. (laughs) Absolutely. And then to kind of tie this all up, like Betty discovers the Hobgoblin beating up Flash for, quote, the many crimes you've perpetrated against me, end quote, which really strongly points the finger at uh, Ned Leeds, right? Like who else would Flash have that big of a grudge with? And then the Hobgoblin shows his face to Betty and she faints. I mean, who else could it be but Ned Leeds? And then we get the end of the issue of 288, this reveal promise, the reveal of the Hobgoblin promised to be in issue 289 and mark i just have to say like when you read this it the book just completely changes the second that owsley takes over from defalco and friends like even just down to the tone of the book and and the focus of the gang war even like suddenly we get all these new characters whose names i can't even remember getting injected in here there's like these kind of like there's just all this stuff that feels so tacked on and last minute. And that's not to say it's like terribly written. It's just a clearly a different writer with a completely different, you know, idea. And it like, it almost like feels like you can sense Owsley's pent up frustration and he's just like exacting revenge like on on the page here it's revenge but i think it's also him being way over his head too i think he realized he messed up and i think it's also worth noting in that blog post like you know he has this conversation with shooter after he fires to falco where he's like well you know he wasn't making deadlines you told me to fire and 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 shooter was basically said to him i didn't think you'd do it (laughs) so i mean so there's the context of this too (laughs) yeah i mean i think the most the biggest thing is this uh one shot that we're going to be talking about that Jim Owsley had planned called Spider-Man versus Wolverine. And we've talked about it a number of times on the show before. And it's a comic that you and I actually quite like, maybe minus the reveals that take place in the comic. This comic was kind of like the place where he knew he could take back control from DeFalco and push the Hobgoblin story in the direction he wanted before the publishing of Amazing Spider-Man 289, where that reveal had had been promised. So here's a clip from our um, interview with Tom DeFalco where he remembers why he felt Owsley fired him before the publishing of his own Spider-Man vs. Wolverine story. Well, actually, a week before that came out, Jim Owsley, who was the editor of Spider-Man, decided to fire me uh, from Spider-Man because he he knew I would kill him uh, if I was on Amazing when that came out. And it's just so interesting to me, Dan, hearing that. And then, you know, we're, we're going to now hear from Peter David, who kind of confirms the account from DeFalco that like this was just all a petty bit of vindictiveness from Owsley here, which was that, you know, and, and it's I think this is 
coming from Peter David, it's important because like Owsley basically discovered Peter David and, and not that like, you know, if someone discovers you, you're obligated to defend them for the rest of your lives. But like, you know, clearly, you know, I was I was there with Peter one on one when this interview happened. And I, I, you know, I don't know if this comes across in the audio, but like he's just clearly like he. I don't want to say he thinks Owsley's a clown, but like he's just clearly exasperated by it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, 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 that he was put in this situation. So, you know, when it came time for 289 to get scripted, Owsley gave the the duties to to Peter David because it was, you know, he, he was kind of his hand-picked person to write Spider-Man. And Peter David was like, all right, so it's going to be Ned Leeds, right? And And Priest was like, no, uh, uh, you can't use Ned Leeds because I'm going to do something with Ned Leeds in Spider-Man versus Wolverine. So why, why, why don't we hear from Peter himself about what, what all that was supposed to be? <laughs> um, it was the most insane project I was ever involved with. Basically, Jim Owsley came to my office. I was working at Marvel at the time in the sales department. And he says, you're going to write the conclusion to the Hobgoblin. And I said, I am? <laughs> And he said, yes, we're going to go out to lunch, and I'm going to tell you who the Hobgoblin is. <laughs> and I said, he's Ned Leeds, because that's who we had decided he was going to be mm -hmm. at a previous Spider meeting. And he said, no, he's not. Come, we'll go to lunch. So he took me out to lunch, and he said, Ned Leeds, he said, the Hobgoblin is going to be the foreigner. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, yes, he's going to be the foreigner. I said, no, he's not. He's Ned Leeds. And... He said, well, no, no, he's going to be the foreigner. And I said, he can't be the foreigner because we said repeatedly that he's a character who's been around since the beginning and the foreigner was introduced after that. Mm -hmm. I, he said, he cannot be the foreigner. And he said, well, he can't be Ned Leeds. And I said, why not? He says, I'm killing off Ned Leeds. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yes, I'm, going to, I'm killing him off in this Spider-Man one-shot. And I said, why are you doing that? He said, to piss off Tom DeFalco. I said, well, that's really mature. <laughs> So about that Spider-Man versus Wolverine story, you know, it's, it's a one shot, you know, completely sandwiched between the 288 and 289, a good story, like well-written story in its, uh, in its own right. This story, we revisit Ned and that whole KGB story that like randomly appeared in Jim Owsley's previous three issues of Amazing Spider-Man. And here's the payoff to that story. So Ned wants to track down this assassin named Charlemagne, who is killing KGB operatives in New York City, like a sniper rifle assassinating them in Times Square. Spider-Man gets caught up in all of this mess, and so does Peter, because Ned wants to travel to Berlin to pursue this person, Charlemagne, and he needs a photographer. So he gets J. Jonah Jameson to assign Peter on this trip. And so they, they go off to Berlin uh, for shenanigans. And, well, I don't know if that's how Ned would classify it, but, <laughs> but, but Peter certainly would. I mean, there's like a funny bit where he has to get like a, like a knockoff Spider-Man costume. The, the spider, right? Or, uh... Yeah. 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 Der Spine or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, Ned and Peter ultimately split up in the story, but when Peter returns to his apartment, he finds Ned dead in the apartment with his throat slit. You know, I think in the context of that story, it would have been kind of like a fine, if like disappointing end to the Ned Leeds character, which I've made fun of over the years as not really being much of a character. So fine. Like if you're going to kill him, okay. 
I think like the problem with this shows up in Amazing Spider-Man 289, which which we'll talk to uh, talk about in a moment. We were really excited to talk to Jim Owsley about this. The reveal ultimately being that this Ned that was dead was killed because he was the Hobgoblin, right? So we wanted to ask Jim about this because he wrote this story, the Spider-Man versus Wolverine. So we sat him down to ask him about his memories about all the Hobgoblin identity drama. And this is what he told us. Ned was never the Hobgoblin. Okay, I was the editor I didn't know who the Hobgoblin is. The only guy who knew who the Hobgoblin is is down at the end of this row here. His name is Roger Stern. Right. <laughs> Roger Stern was the only guy who knew who Hobgoblin was. And I never intended for Ned Leeds to be the Hobgoblin. And I want to go on record with that, sir, because I'm being blamed with that. And, and in fact, Roger was furious with me for a long time. And I went, I didn't do – my name's not on that book. Okay, I was long gone. Somebody pulled the, pulled the trigger on that. And that wasn't me. Ned was never supposed to be Hobby. So, Mark, in our <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man 200 or Amazing Spider-Talk 200 episode, we didn't really unpack our feelings about this interview. I mean, as excited as we were, I think we briefly discussed it on the show, but it didn't feel right to kind of give our opinions after we got, you know, to his credit, Christopher Priest slash Jim Owsley was gracious enough to talk to us and was, you know, a really friendly guy in yeah. person and has discussed coming back on the show in the future. So we felt like, hey, maybe we shouldn't thumb our nose, you know, no. uh, at, at the guy because he was oh, really nice and he's yeah. a really amazing place in the history of, of comics. Although I would say that it's worth noting that Ron Friends, who was in the same convention hall that night, was like, what did he tell you? <laughs> <laughs> for a long time, I thought Ron Friends was really upset with us for doing this interview. I don't think that's the case. No. I was probably just being way too sensitive. You know, he saw us laughing it up with Jim Owsley, the guy that fired him from his dream job. As a, as good friends with Ron, I would, I, you know, like I can understand him feeling a, like a little bit like what's going on with you guys and, and, and Christopher priest over there, <laughs> Mark, how do you feel about this reaction to our question of, of uh, Christopher priest about this? Cause I have some mixed feelings about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, mixed is one way of putting it. I mean, it's also worth noting again, going back to that blog post, like kind of to what priest says in our interview with him. Like he, he, at one point he writes, kind of in the midst of like all of the drama going on between him, DeFalco and friends where he goes. And then at some point, Ned Leeds had Ned Leeds became the hobgoblin, which I had nothing to do with, <laughs> which actually, if you listen to Peter David is true. He doesn't want Ned Leeds to be the hobgoblin. <laughs> like, I guess the thing is maybe we needed to be more specific. Our problem isn't necessarily that it is Ned Leeds. It's the execution of it. Is that our problem with it? It's that clearly Priest was just burning all of the bridges and all of the evidence and everything. Like, I mean, like he was just lighting the forest on fire here. And I, I don't think there truly was an exit strategy here. I mean, you know, Peter, Peter David's description was that, you know, Owsley wanted to use the foreigner, which was like, 
okay, what? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, like, hey, when the foreigner shows up in 2021, I'm like, what? Who cares? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so Mark, explain, imagine- explain who the foreigner was at the time in these oh, comics. God, yeah. So, like, I mean, he had only been introduced, what, maybe like a year or so earlier, if even? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, he's he's another crime lord, you know? Like, I, I mean, like, 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 how would you best describe his origin? Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't even know if I can explain it because I've never cared enough to really learn who this character is. <laughs> I, I feel exactly the same way. He, I mean, he's like an assassin, like he, uh, for hire. You know, he's like in the Silver Sable uh, ranks, which is funny because they shack those two up together. But like for me, I think he like. I know his blog post is much more gracious about his mistakes and his involvement in all this, but like, I was a little taken aback. Like there's his answer was really just to kind of throw Peter David under the bus. Like, you know, not, not to say like he was driving the bus, Jim Owsley. Right. So like if Peter David mess up, it's only because he put Peter David in that position to have to make an insane decision that he had to make. Yeah. And, and and like him saying like that, the only person who knew was Roger Stern was like just so disingenuous because like, I mean, by all accounts at this point, Roger Stern had not been consulted for years about the Hobgoblin. I mean, the last time Roger Stern was consulted, if you are to believe the accounts that we've gotten over the years was when DeFalco took over the book and said, so who are you going to do? Oh, no, I'm not going to go in that direction. You know, like that was that was the last time it mattered. And like the, to make it sound like Owsley was trying to honor roger stern's initial vision before you know when he wasn't even on the book when when owsley took over as editor like that i mean to me it's very disingenuous and 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 not not remotely honest i I mean you know like i just think that he's just trying to cover for i think you know frankly i think it's it's more of a case of you know he let ego and vindictiveness take over and he got in over his head and couldn't find a way out well, you know, when you let vindictiveness and ego take over, there's only one solution. Peter, Peter David. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Peter David and his solution. Because, I mean, like, I actually, like, I truly sympathize with Peter David here and, like, what he ended up having to do. So going into Amazing Spider-Man 289, you know, even though like Priest had kind of handpicked Peter David to do this issue in the interim between Spider-Man versus Wolverine and the publication of this, Owsley got fired by by Shooter. Uh, as as I had mentioned, you know, Shooter was like, I didn't actually think you would fire DeFalco and friends. And, you know, it's worth noting, too, that DeFalco was a good friend of Shooter's and then PPS DeFalco took over as editor in chief when Shooter got fired. So that 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 kind of put the nail in the coffin for for Priest and Owsley of ever coming back. Jim Salakrup took over uh, as editor of the Spider Books. We'll hear from Jim in a second, but like it's worth noting, you know, kind of what Jim Jim's whole mantra at this point was to just move the f on from all of this so it was like let's like let's get all of the stuff that's like been inventoried or is in the bank and get it out find a new creative team which ended up being 
David Michelini and Todd McFarlane, you know, I'd say that was a good choice, right? <laughs> yeah, fair um, enough. And 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 to just put all of this in the rearview mirror. So why why don't we actually hear from Jim here to talk about what he was trying to do? Every time we put out an issue, uh, it was the best we could under those circumstances. One of the things I have to tell new writers and artists all the time is that the job in comics is not necessarily to do the absolute best you can possibly do because that could be endless it's really to do the best you possibly can within the deadlines uh, and you know it's 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 quite a challenge it's not an easy thing to do and uh, there are certain expectations and you know with such a high profile character and a storyline that was so important for so long I certainly was uh, you know not exactly comfortable uh, that you know like this is this is what I had to deal with uh, from from day one uh, I think what I was able to do after that is I was getting a lot of, uh, uh, not pressure per se, but people in the accounting department were saying, hey, there's a whole lot of inventory on Spider-Man piling up. When are you guys ever going to use that? And I saw that as an opportunity to buy myself time. It's like, well, let me use that stuff, put all this as behind me and buy myself some time to figure out what I want to do on the books. So it's unfortunate. I think it was sort of a, you know, I'm glad you like the issue. Yeah. I mean, we tried our best uh, with, uh, you know, with somewhat limited cooperation from right. a lot of people and, uh, you know, did what we, you know, like the, the best we could at the time. I mean, uh, I would ask Roger Stern, I would ask Tom DeFalco, I would ask Jim Ousey. I have lots of respect for all these people, and it's unfortunate uh, that they didn't get to do whatever it is that they wanted to do and do it their way. I would have been a lot happier coming in after that chapter was uh, was finished and then, you know, being able to, uh, you know, start things myself. So, Mark, you know, he makes reference to getting it all over with and with limited cooperation from the people in resolving it, which is an artful way of putting of putting this whole drama. So, like, what did Peter David ultimately come up with? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, he, he does bring in the foreigner. So the foreigner, foreigner is hired to kill the hobgoblin, and he does so, at least he thinks. But then Ned Leeds' casket is removed from the plane for all to see, and the hobgoblin turns up at the Roses and kills a number of his men. So Kingpin hands a dossier to Spider-Man, and that has all of the information on the hobgoblin, including his identity. And then lo and behold, it turns out that the hobgoblin is Ned Leeds and that uh, he was using the power, his new power that he got from the goblin serum to get revenge on Spider-Man for how much he kind of interfered with his relationship with Betty. Okay, I guess that's a reason. And then like, oh, and, the, the, and on top of that, like it was also because he felt that he wanted to get at Spider-Man because Betty Brant would wake, Betty would wake up in the middle of the night screaming 
her name, uh, his like, Spider-Man's name, because going all the way back to what is that ASM 11 or 12? It's only when, yeah, 11. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that first Doc Ock, like, or that second Doc Ock arc when uh, Ned leads, uh, excuse me, Betty Brant's brother gets killed in a fight at the docks or at Coney Island, excuse me. In the midst of all this, the jack-o'-lantern steals the hobgoblin's costume and takes over. Turns out he was the one who hired the foreigner to kill Ned Leeds. So Spider-Man goes after Jack-o'-lantern and is almost defeated by him. But then Flash is back. He redirects one of the bombs. He has a hero moment, saves Spider-Man, almost fatally injures himself, but then allows him to clear his name of the hobgoblin and we can kind of move on. Big, big mess of a story. Although, like, I don't know, man, I read this comic and like I might be in the minority here. But like considering all of the crap that went into it, I actually don't think this is too badly written. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? Am I am I being overly kind to it? (laughs) No, I, I think you're right. I mean, like, again, hindsight says there was a better answer for this, which is to bring back Roger Stern and let him resolve it. But he incorporates all of this into his story. I actually think this is like about as clean as you could possibly make it. Like the Betty Brant of it all is a little bit too much for me. I, I actually think like Peter David, it, like managed to pull it off. And the funny thing is like Tom DeFalco's like, like was removed from the book, like, and threatened like, Hey, if he let me stay on this book, I would kill Ned Leeds first. But ultimately the killing of Ned Leeds didn't matter. Right. It was it's something that happened off page. And this is all just a massive retcon by Peter David. But there was no other way to clean it up if it had to be Ned Leeds. Right. And, you know, that's the choice he made. And as far as choices go, he made it work to the best of his ability. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't see any other any other direction you could go, given everything else that had been unveiled at that point. You know, I mean, I guess you could have gone back to Kingsley, but like no one's really like Kingsley really wasn't played up except for that one batch of issues that we we referred to. So, I, you know, it's it's interesting, like if, if people did want to lean on that, maybe Stern would have gotten the outcome he originally had planned in the first place, which is an interesting what if, if you will. But let's hear from Peter to kind of talk about what he describes as the most insane project I have ever been involved with. I was satisfied with what I wrote. And the reason I'm satisfied with it was because I was thrust into a situation that I absolutely could not win. No. Um, It was the most insane project I was ever involved with. Um, And so he said, well, if he's not Ned Leeds, who is he? And I'm going back and forth and trying to figure out what the hell to do. And I came up with the demented notion of, no, he is Ned Leeds. He's just going to be dead when we do the reveal. (laughs) And we said, well, then who is he then? And I said, said, well, who would want Ned Leeds dead? And then I came up with the notion of it being Mm Jack-O-Lantern because the Hobgoblin had threatened Jack-O-Lantern. So now we did bring the foreigner into it because the foreigner is his master assassin. And I figured if anyone knows who the Hobgoblin is, it's going to be the foreigner. Yes. And so, okay, we have the foreigner's men burst in, catch Ned Leeds flat-footed, and in an astoundingly badly drawn scene that had no drama or punch or action to it, uh, that's exactly what happened. And lo and behold, that's how Ned Leeds turned out to be the Hobgoblin. It was a story that I did because I had absolutely no other way to do it. And I took a certain satisfaction in that nobody else would ever do anything like it again. (laughs) 
all right, Mark, the, the story that really bugs me the most in all of this is not the one we just discussed, because like I said, I think we both kind of respect it for what it had to do. I think the real mess here is web of Spider-Man numbers 29 and 30, which like is an additional resolution to all of this written by Jim Owsley slash Christopher Priest. And this is like where you get into like real crazy town to the point that like this, I think well, until we brought back like since past recently, this is one of those like major stories that I think has largely been kind of thrown into the ash heap of forgotten Spider-Man stories because nobody wants to really acknowledge the continuity of these issues. Is is that fair to say? Oh yeah. Like I, I, I can't think of a single, I mean, even like Hobgoblin lives doesn't talk about these comics. It's just like completely dusted away as if Thanos snapped it out of existence. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about what happens in, in, in these issues. So do we have of, to, <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're going to get into it. So in web of 29, Richard Fisk, the Rose, attends Ned's funeral and later reveals to his friends that Ned and he were working t together to topple Kingpin's empire. So far, so good, right? Yeah. Like, so this is where Captain Keating <laughs> comes back into it and, and Kingsley start like fighting about going to, to jail. Leeds apparently was feeding Captain Keating information on the gangs in New York in exchange for Keating to look the other way on all of his hobgoblin stuff. So like, this is what's happening. Like Ned Leeds is now feeding information to the captain so he can get away with being the hobgoblin. Okay. All while Kingsley apparently is making weapons for Leeds. So that's why in 280, we saw them in that dressing room together was like the reason they were there is because Kingsley is apparently a weapon maker for Ned Leeds. Okay. Fine. <laughs> w whatever. You know, like this doesn't match up at all with Hobgoblin Lives, which we'll talk about later. So the Rose's cronies then show up and shoot Kingsley in the shoulder and try to kill Captain Keating, but the captain escapes. Then in Web of 30, which is basically a giant info dump on how all this fits together, it provides the backstory of the Hobgoblin and the Rose, like the real truth behind right. them. So apparently, you know, remember that house in the Hamptons that the Hobgoblin was living at? That was Richard Fisk's house. Ned Leeds found it because he went poking around there while investigating a story on the Kingpin. And then he, Ned Leeds started stalking Richard Fisk for his story all around the world. He like, that's why he was going overseas. He was stalking Richard Fisk. But at some point, Richard changes his mind about Ned's and like Ned and decides like, let's team up to bring my father down at the exact same time that Ned coincidentally happens across all of the goblin gear that would let him transform into the hobgoblin. So then Ned is like, hey, check it out, Richard. I got this hobgoblin costume. And they're like, great, let's let's work together. Together they cook up the identity of the Rose. That's the retcon backstory. None of this makes sense given where the story would ultimately go in the future and what we'll talk about on our next episode, because it like 
implies all of these things about Ned Leeds and Richard Fisk, which are just categorically untrue in the current canon of Spider-Man comics. So like really, truly, largely forgotten these stories or ignored. Maybe there's a reason that it's ret- a way it's retconned that I'm not remembering, but these stories are really incongruous. Maybe they made sense at the time, although they were still really uh, quite the tall tale. But yeah, anyway, web of 29 and 30 are really strange issues. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have a comment but uh, about something that happened here but like i i want to hear christopher priest say this comment first about his relationship with roger stern in relation to all of this just because i feel like this just needs to be put out into the world before i react to it (laughs) all right roll the clip at the time it was so much fun playing the guessing game and they played it so well so all i did all tom defalco did i don't think tom knew either I think all we did was kind of run stuff by Roger so we don't accidentally step on who the real Hobgoblin was. All right, Mark, react away. I mean, so it's disingenuous as that first comment we we played from Priest was like, I mean, to me, this is like like abhorrent and it's disingenuousness. <laughs> like, like, oh, we were checking with Roger Stern this whole time. Like, what? What the bleep are you talking about like so like it's also worth so i i wanted to point out when you were kind of going through the web of 29 uh and 30 sequence that scene where kingsley is shot at in the shoulder like you know again we don't see a a corpse or anything like that but i i i'm kind of positive we don't see kingsley again until roger stern brings him back 10 years later right i mean like when does kingsley ever show up at a comic again I think that's correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, like Kingsley, like, like I, I have read that. And then in the context of the fact that we never see the character again, that the character is almost presumed dead. I think they make it explicit that he's just shot in the shoulder, but I, I wouldn't blame you for reading it otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not entirely clear, but I, you're right. I mean, it's explicit that he wasn't, sh- it wasn't a kill shot, but like the fact that we never see him again, it's like, okay, fine. He's got a shoulder injury, but it's an injury that will prevent him from ever being seen in the comics again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's like he's erased from history after this moment until Roger Stern brings it back. On the believability index, this is like a negative three. I don't buy this one iota that that Christopher Priest was running stuff by Roger Stern. Like I just like I, I like the and like I could have called him out on it then and there. But again, like I'll admit it, we were caught. I, I personally, I was caught up in the fact that like like we got this guy on our show who literally wrote a blog post saying, I don't, I won't talk about this period of my life anymore talking about this period in his life. So I like, he, he could have said almost anything and I would have been like, fine, let it be out there. And I'm not going to sit here and challenge this guy and, and blow our interview. But like, come on, like this, 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 there's no way this is even remotely true. There's no truth to this zero. Right. Well, the funny thing is Roger Stern is like in the time this interview is like a hundred feet away from us. That's true. Right. <laughs> so like, if, like the true gang war of all this could have really happened at this Terrificon if, <laughs> if we just like wanted to push those tables together. Like, right. How, I wonder how much of like a writer they have, like, you know, at, at Terrificon. I know Mitch, who runs that show, like he's got to know not to place these tables anywhere near each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, like Ron Friends remembers all of this playing out quite differently, as he says in this recording with us. Uh, you know, it, there was the issue that Roger had never really had much of a chance. There were some 
I, I'll be honest, when, when we originally, when we took over the book, and I said, you know, are we going to go with Roger's idea? And Roger's, I, you know, Tom kind of didn't give Roger's idea even at the time. He's doing, he said, no, it's his evil twin. Now, Roger maintains that they're not twins. Uh, they're brothers, and they look very much alike, but they're not twins. Yeah. I don't really, I mean, come on, Rog. <laughs> I love you dearly. I really do, and I respect the hell out of you, but... How are you going to fool people if you're not identical twins? If you're identical twins, it's a it's it's a hard sell. But one was bald and one wasn't. Well, uh, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, they have to be at least twins. Yeah, uh, no. When we used them in Spider Girl, we made it very clear that they're at least twins, and that's how they were able to fool people. Uh, but you know, I mean, it is a shame that some of Roger's original intentions, you know, didn't get played out and all that. Because that's the thing. I mean, he left the book before he was able to really bring that home as a real clue but it was, the stuff that he says is in there even as a fan before i took over the book i wasn't getting it but ultimately mark at the end of the day i feel like uh we interviewed jim salakrup and the way that he put it is maybe the best way you could put this whole thing you know that's not something i look back at and think uh, oh i so brilliantly handled that it was it was just trying to do the best i could and working with the people there and uh, you know and, and i'm always happy to hear people you know liked how it came out but if someone tells me uh, oh this is all wrong i i don't argue with them i say well you're probably right <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i mean like what more of a coda do you need on all of this the words i'm sorry and, are we gonna, are we gonna you know, coming from the guy that i wouldn't even blame at all for this no i mean he was just like let's move on people <laughs> but that's that that shows jim's jim salakrup's character and all this I, I i almost made the joke dan are we gonna get an i'm sorry about uh how the the, the kindred was revealed <laughs> Some point. <laughs> I I don't think so, Mark. Let's let's talk about all this. Like, obviously, we like. I mean, as exhaustive as this was, there's so much more we could get into and do this for hours, as you and I have in the his our history together. Why do we love this particular creation story so much? I mean, like. I know the drama is fun, but like, why all the fascination? I mean, I can speak for myself, but I'm more curious to hear from you, Mark, because you've really been like the driving force, I think, behind a lot of this documentation. I think it's just the absurdity of it all, Dan. I mean, like for me, it's like, OK, like I, I just made that reference about Kindred and, and you know, like, frankly, the, the world of the, the history of Spider-Man comics is filled with moments of kind of less than stellar reveals and lackluster mysteries. I mean, like, I, I, I kind of wish we would just put a moratorium on mystery villains because like they, they just rarely work out. You know what I mean? Like and and but like, I mean, I think, first of all, this is kind of 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 the mystery villains being lackluster. I think this kind of frankly is the pinnacle of it. You know, there's one thing if like, oh, OK, like, you know, dance lot introduces a new goblin and it turns out to be norman osborne with cosmetic surgery it's like all right that's kind of lame but like at least like dan slot the creator and his editors and his artists and all that like they got to see their creation to fruition right with hobgoblin i think part of the fascination is that there so many cooks were in the kitchen that there there was just no way to get the original vision in any facet or form 
So like it was doomed. It was just doomed from the start. And like watching this kind of train wreck play out in slow motion, it's just it's just utterly fascinating to me because it's also absurd. It's like it's comical that that there was even an attempt to resolve this. Like, you know, like why even go back to the Hobgoblin mystery after a while? Because it was just so clearly not going to happen. Yeah, I think for me, you know, short of like brand new day and one more day, this is maybe the most transparent the behind the scenes drama of a character is in terms of like playing out on the page. Like there's no way to read these comics and not see what is going on by reading the, like the credits page. It's, it's funny because it comes at the end of like really great fun storytelling. I mean, I'm sure I would have complained about how dragged out the hobgoblin thing was at the time, but you're 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 getting a really solidly told mystery here that then just completely falls apart in the third act for reasons that are like fairly apparent on the page and from the creators to me that's always been the most fascinating thing about it because so rarely like you don't you and I don't have to dig terribly deep to find a lot of this stuff like right. it's it's right there especially in today's age where you don't get a lot of tell alls because the this kind of wall is put up, you know, this might be the last like really big creator drama in the Spider-Man world that really played out quite so obviously. We conducted most of these interviews between like 2013 and 2018. I mean, most of them between like 2013 and 2014, frankly. And yet, like when you talk to these people about it who worked on the story in the 1980s, they still talk like like there were there the wounds are still fresh for these people which i think is interesting too i i don't know if the wounds are still fresh for priest i think he's just kind of like whatever it happened i wrote black panther and basically like <laughs> wrote the the version of the character that started a a a, a iconic movie so i'm fine <laughs> i mean I, I think that's part of it which is to yeah. say like for tom defalco and ron friends like the writing Spider-Man was like a duty. It was like a sacred duty for them. Right. And for priest, it just never held that, you know, position of power and it allowed him to move on from it and be cavalier with it. And you've got this kind of like tug of war between these creative forces. It only makes sense that DeFalco and friends would still be upset about it. One, because they're, they got cut short, I think in a way that was, like not warranted because I do think that their run is one of the best runs on the character, you know, by someone that just didn't really care about it quite nearly as much as they did. It seems. I think that's fair. Although like I would say like, Hey, Tom DeFalco got to run Marvel during like one of the most profitable periods ever. So, you know, he did all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it's just crazy to me, but like, yeah, I mean like, you know, like, we and when we talk to these guys a lot, they always kind of couch it by saying, "Well, you know, this this is this is ancient history for us." But like the way they talk about this, like you know, I really had not listened to that first interview we did with Tom Tefalco uh, in 2013 until we started researching this episode again. And like when you listen to it, like he is just so clearly pissed off by it, you know? Like, yeah. There's, there's no, there's no mincing words. Like what, what priest did to him is unforgivable. Like, I don't think like, you know, friends made some jokes about it to us when we were there in 2018. I think if Tom was there, it, they wouldn't be jokes. 
I don't know. Like I, to me, like I just feel like a line was crossed that there was to a point of no return there. It's not only transparent, but like, you know, like you talk about one more day and like the, the, the fallout with JMS and, and Joe Quesada and, and Axel Alonso, but like, that's still closer to the vest than anything that happened here. You know what I mean? Like you're never like JMS is never going to go truly scorched earth about it and nor will Joe Q or, or Axel Alonso. But like when it comes to this, like I think all of these characters would just, all all these players just would kind of burn it to the ground again. You know, like they are just pissed and hurt and they feel like their art was not, you know, didn't live up to the integrity that it should have been. And then poor Peter David's in the middle of it, just being like, I just tried to make it work the best I could. This is ridiculous. I'm like, why are you, why, why are you dragging me into this guy's, <laughs> you know? So and same does, with Jim Salakrub. <laughs> does all of this impact your feelings about the Hobgoblin character? I mean, we talked in the Stern episode about how much we love how that character is written and played out in that run. Uh, I'll say for me, this kind of makes me love the character even more. But I don't think that we would apply that same virtue to stuff that we're reviewing now. We would probably like scorch earth this. And I don't know if like hindsight is 2020 or nostalgia like weighs heavily, but I just can't help but find this stuff kind of fun in its own way because none of the comics are like outright bad. It's just like really messy. I don't hold the hobgoblin as a character with the same level of affection that you do because of this, frankly, like, and it's not that it's not that it ruins it for me, but it's like, like you almost kind of feel like because they didn't get it right the first time, it's kind of hard to just ignore that. Like, even though, you know, as we'll talk about in our next episode, Roger Stern resolves this in the way that's masterful. Like he did it, you know, like, and, and, (laughs) I think if like we had just had this from the get go, yeah, the Hobgoblin would go down as like one of the great characters. But like, I got to be honest, when you talk to me or if a fan asks me about like favorite, you know, who are your favorite villains that kind of came after that initial like Silver Age run? I don't always go to the Hobgoblin. I go to Venom first because I feel like Venom actually worked all the way through and wasn't screwed up in any way. But like, it's hard for me to kind of think of the hobgoblin as truly great because of how messed up this got, you know, like I think it's like if it just stopped at 251 and I don't know, like they just found a way to not go through all this. I would have been like, oh, yeah, like hobgoblin is like one of the best creations they've ever had. I mean, I love the drama. I love talking about it. I love going back to these comics and rereading them. Not only because, like you said, they're not bad, but also to kind of find the inconsistencies and like, oh, well, maybe they could have gone in this direction. But like the, as the character, it's hard for me to truly list this as an elevated character because of how poorly this was executed in the end. I mean, you know, I know you don't feel that way, but that's just kind of coming straight from my heart when it comes about this. Well, we can get into this a little bit more in, in our next episode as we round out the trilogy. But like my feeling is like there's a weird sort of character arc for the hobgoblin, which is to say he's got a strong beginning. He, he hits some trouble on his way to the climax. And then <laughs> Roger Stern, like gives us a nice uh, resolution and, and, and denouement. There's almost like a meta character arc 
for for the hobgoblin that involves the behind the scenes you know like roger stern is the return of the prodigal son we'll talk about that in the next episode but like it's funny because like i, I kind of like that whole like all this behind the scenes stuff is almost the like character of the character that I like. Again, that will be more fleshed out when we talk about Hobgoblin Lives, etc. In, in, in our next episode. Well, Mark, I think this is kind of like a fitting way to end the, an episode <laughs> that has been nine years in the making. I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you do find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Really, recommending Amazing Spider Talk to a friend is the best way that you can support us. Or maybe like the first way you can support us. But really, if you have the ability, why not become a member of our Patreon? We could only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, Patreon members will uh, hear Dan and my review of Amazing Spider-Man number 81. Yeah, so why not take the $3.99 that a typical new comic costs, which is like less than a cup of coffee, maybe, depends where you get your coffee, and put True. it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. That way you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcasts on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week it comes out instead of awaiting for it to arrive in our public podcast feed. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print by artist Ron Friends. He's created a lost page of the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man for Us, which was inked by Brett Breeding, and it depicts Tim and Spidey sharing laughs over Tim's Spider-Man comic collection. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. And if you're listening to this episode on the day it came out, truly, this is the last time to jump on board to get that Ron Friends artwork because I will be sending it out in a couple weeks for everybody to enjoy. So if you've been considering it, come on board now, you know, and, and you can join on and then the, it'll be the line will be cut off from people who can get that print. Yeah, we know it's a hard time for everybody, the holiday season, buying Christmas gifts and inflation and all of that jazz. Oh my gosh, maybe we'll have to bring out Silvermane. It's hard for us too, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. All you have to do is follow the link in the description to get more information and consider signing up. And, you know, this all goes without saying, but a major thank you to all the members who make this show possible and allow Mark for Mark and I to create something like this Hobgoblin episode, which takes a lot of our time and, and you guys allow us to justify it. We like to think we're justified in spending this amount of time on it, but you can ask our wives and they'll probably tell us something completely different. <laughs> Yeah. And to your first point, Dan, all I could say is there's a cream cheese shortage. So I get the hard times right now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to come back to bagels for us. I, Everything you know, comes like, back to bagels. Got to come back to bagels. But before we talk about bagels or I, maybe I should say after we talk about bagels, we got to talk about that time of the episode. It's a sad time, but it's a time that has to come, of course, that time for things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you 
the listeners and viewers for tuning into this episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artist Ron Friends. Hey, look at that. Look right there. Um, Sal Busema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack and Spider Madge, plus our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton. This was a lot of fun, Dan, but what do we got coming up next? Well, Mark, it's the end of the trilogy. Like Spider-Man 3, it's the best of the bunch, right? <laughs> I think it will be. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode. Yes, it was all for be- my daughter. <laughs> we're going to be concluding the Hobgoblin trilogy with the return of Roger Stern as we discuss the stories Hobgoblin Lives and Goblins at the Gate. Roger Stern's back, baby. And he's going to resolve it. No, I'm excited about this. These are some fun stories. And of course, we'll be jumping in time again to a period. I mean, I guess we could hypothetically be pointing uh, talking about this in our late 90s season. But, you know, who can wait that long? Right. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Who knows when we'll be doing that anyway. But uh, (laughs) until next time, Mark, we have to leave everyone with our motto, the very thing that forms the backbone of our show. So, Mark. Until we learn that you've never been my co-host, but we're always my evil twin, what's our motto? But I'm not your twin. I just look a lot like you, Dan. (sighs) Anyway, that motto, of course, is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Woohoo! We did it! Woohoo!